Hello, and welcome back to America's Constitution. So right now we're in the middle of it, aren't we? With uh, impeachment going on before our eyes. Absolutely, and we're going to upload this uh, very shortly. It's, it's not quite live, but it's, it's close. Yes, and uh, just the other day, uh, actually, uh, Akhil and I had the uh, opportunity to uh, pen together uh, an op-ed in the New York Daily News uh, regarding a, an interesting idea about impeachment. Would you like to elaborate on it? Well, it's but your brainchild, so um, over to you, doctor. Well, basically, the idea was that um, you know we we wanted to draw a distinction between impeachment and let's say a regular trial for something that the president might uh, do wrong um, and be accused of some crime after he leaves office. Um, it's the Senate is not a criminal tribunal in the same sense. Um, so even though the Constitution speaks of high crimes and misdemeanors, it doesn't really have quite the same meaning as it would colloquially, and that's something we'd like to discuss today. Uh, in any event, if it means something different, that means that the Senate proceeding is, so is something different. And we outlined a framework where you might look at it as a trial of presidential malpractice, where the, the Senate determines whether President Trump's behavior was so far out of bounds from what the way presidents should conduct themselves in some manner that that constituted a high crime and misdemeanor and deserved one or more of the sanctions outlined in the Constitution. Right, as we're going to talk about, misdemeanor can be understood not in a technical, uh, legalistic way, but as misbehavior. De demeanor means behavior. Um, and so what, what kind of um, gross misbehavior are we looking for? Well, it's not utterly different, and this was your insight from malpractice in, in medicine. It's gross medical misbehavior, and, um, and in, in an impeachment proceeding, we're looking uh, for gross presidential misbehavior, and uh, in a malpractice. And in a medical malpractice case, um, the, the way that that would be determined, the jurors aren't doctors, um, and they don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of what a doctor is supposed to do in any given situation. What seems to them like perfectly normal behavior might actually be out of bounds or vice versa. So, um, so to that, to help the jurors, um, usually uh, experts, other doctors uh, are called to educate the jury. Um, and our, our notion was that we might, we suggested something comparable. Um, so who would be an expert to help the Senate make their decision um, at, well, we thought ex-presidents. Who else really knows what it's like to be president? And that builds on our um, last podcast uh, just about how singular the presidency is, um, how most presidents are failed presidents. It's set, there's no great training for it. And, and really the only ones who really understand what the job is and what it means to do it well and what it means to do it in an utterly unfaithful way, the, the only ones who really understand that viscerally in their bones are not the hundred presidential wannabes, uh, a.k.a. the senators, um, but frankly the ex-presidents. And this was your insight kind of building on our last conversation. Well, gee, um, if the presidency is really as unusual as you say, Akhil, then the people who really are the experts are, would be the ex-presidents. And so instead of a circus um, uh, with the, a clown-like witness like the QAnon shaman um, uh, and uh, just focusing on one episode of, of um, a Stormy of the Capitol, 
It shouldn't be a circus. It should be a seminar. And the witnesses shouldn't be just witnesses about um, the marauders on January 6th. They should be actually former um, presidents. And, and it shouldn't just be narrowly focused on this one uh, day, but the broader pattern and practice of Donald Trump's demeanor in office, especially approaching the election and following the election, and does his behavior, he pushed very hard, um, but does his behavior fall way out of bounds? Because all the people who become president, actually, or almost all of them, pushed very hard. Um, most people you know, aren't president because they don't obviously run for president because it takes a certain kind of person to even think they can be president. And, and, and those are people who push very hard. We talked about how Woodrow Wilson wants to be re-reelected even after his stroke, and, and, he, and he's not unique. And, and Teddy Roosevelt wants to come back yet again, and Ulysses S. Grant actually steps down, but he wants to come back. Teddy Roosevelt wants to come back after he'd stepped down. Um, the kind of personality that um, uh, uh, you need in order to even run for president is a, a personality that is going to push very hard, and yet... I want to hear from these folks whether they think that Donald Trump was two standard deviations below the general standard of care, two standard deviations out of bounds. Um, and um, we also thought, I don't, it's not going to happen, but we also thought that if it did happen, oh, there would be ratings. People would actually tune in, and it would be a good seminar for not just the senators, but for the country about what presidents are supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. And by the way, if... Um, uh, uh, one believes, as you do and I do, when we talk about this in our New York Daily News op-ed, which we'll, of course, put up on the, the website, um, if you believe that um, ex-presidents are impeachable and, and triable um, and subject to the judgment of the, of the Senate, to conviction and even possible disqualification, if you believe all that, and we do, well, then the ex-presidents, the living ex-presidents, are themselves subject to all this. So they're actually talking about what standards not just Donald Trump should be held to, but they can still be held to, should be held to, and still be held to, because they, you know, if they try to somehow set the bar you know, too low, they themselves are vulnerable. So you know, our um, thought experiment in this uh, daily news piece is, what if we heard from them? And it came about, frankly, the way this podcast has come about, um, with me as a constitutional uh, expert and, and historian, and especially presidential historian, talking, and you bringing, among other things, your, your expertise as a generalist, but, but also actually um, as an eye surgeon, as a doctor, because you actually said, oh, that sounds a little bit like malpractice litigation that I know a thing or two about, Akil. Yes, although I'm happy to say that in my 30-plus uh, years as, a, as an ophthalmologist, I never had to face malpractice litigation personally. Now, were you ever asked to be an expert witness? I, I did review charts and write reports uh, and so forth, so the answer is yes. Um, although I, I did not appear in court uh, in, in that context. I was an expert in another context. Um, at any rate, but um, getting back to, the, to the what's going on now... Um, you know, we have the article of impeachment that um, uh, was produced by the House, um, and it's a bit more specific than what we're talking about, isn't it? I would prefer that they didn't caption it, incitement insurrection. I think those are technical criminal law terms, um, uh, and impeachment need not be an ordinary 
uh, uh, statute book, criminal law offense. When you read the whole um, charge, it does toward the end um, try to contextualize um, the January 6th um, uh, speech by the president and put it in a broader context of um, trying to first disparage um, presidential election uh, election process and then defy it um, afterwards. And to me, that's the bigger um, misbehavior, the bigger high crime and misdemeanor, the frankly, the big lie um, th- um, that the election won't be fair when he thought he was going to lose, and then when he did lose, it wasn't fair, it was stolen. And um, I'm on record as saying 20 years ago that lying to the American people under certain circumstances is easily and obviously an impeachable offense and could be much more significant than a technical statutory uh, crime of a, of, of a certain sort. Um, and I'm ima- I was imagining back then lying to the American people about, for example, like getting us into a war that was just designed for your own personal profit. Now, that might not be a statute book offense in any sense, but that's obviously gross misbehavior, a high misdemeanor, um, uh, lying to the Senate of the United States about a treaty and um, what deal, side deals you may have made or, or not made with, with the, the treaty partner, and lying to the American people about the integrity of an election process, which is the process by which you are supposed to be evaluated by your masters, the American people, that's among the core impeachable offenses. If Abraham Lincoln had tried to um, uh, put off an election, I, you and I would not have the same awe and reverence that we have for, for him. He didn't do that. In the middle of a civil war, he held an election fair and square uh, uh, on um, schedule. And when Trump was talking long before election day about possibly postponing it, um, that's a, um, a high crime and misdemeanor to basically try to say we shouldn't have our presidential election o- on time. And indeed, my friend and co-teacher Steve Calabresi chose that moment to jump off the Trump train. He voted for Trump in 2016. He's the f- one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society. And when Donald Trump started making noises about maybe it was, he was floating a trial balloon, maybe we should just postpone the election... That's when Steve Calabresi jumped off the Trump train, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying Trump should be impeached for that alone long before the election, long before the Stop the Steal, long before the January um, uh, 6th rabble-rousing speech, uh, because Steve saw in that um, uh, authoritarianism, um, uh, a a dictatorship, um, a direct assault on the most basic of constitutional values, even though... Perhaps in floating all that, uh, Trump committed no ordinary statute book um, uh, crime. So, as a senator now, if you if one you know is sitting as a, a juror in, in effect, um, do you have the same responsibility um, as a regular juror in the sense that you you have to respond to the specifics of the indictment, or which in this in case the this case the article of impeachment, or do you have the discretion? To say to look at Trump's behavior uh, as you are in a in a wider context. Um, my concern is that by focusing on January sixth in the article of impeachment, although as you say towards the end they did leave a little wiggle room, but nevertheless, it it does that exclude the senators from considering these other matters? Well, the key is 
um, that it has to be in the bill of indictment, which is the counterpart to a bill of the bill of impeachment, excuse me, which is the counterpart to a bill of indictment in the criminal context. And so here's what's not ever permitted in an ordinary criminal case. The grand jury says, you know, you are um, accused, charged with crimes A, B, and C because you did a certain thing on, on the following days, X, Y, and Z. The pediatric could say, well, we're not sure if you did A, B, and C, and we're not sure it happened on days X, Y, and Z, but we think you did other stuff. No. Um, the grand jury and the trial jury have to pretty much be in sync um, about what you did. Um, and um, this is called, um, in ordinary criminal law, variance. Um, uh, um, maybe it's, uh, if it wasn't of the essence of the thing, and these are nice legal questions sometimes, that you did it on day X. Okay, maybe you did it the, the previous day. It was slightly before midnight, you know. Uh, so we thought we, you, you committed the crime at um, 12.15 a.m., and you really did it at 11.45 p.m. Well, unless there's some statute of limitations issue, that that's a minor um, uh, a variation, variance, between what was alleged in the indictment and what was actually proved beyond reasonable doubt at trial. Um, the same basic ideas of fairness, even though this isn't a criminal case, I think apply here. The, the House and the Senate have to pretty much both be in sync about why you're being subject to this process. So the key is what you just mentioned, um, which is if you read the whole thing um, at the very end, there is language in the bill of impeachment um, about the broader context. Here is the, uh, the article of impeachment um, from January 13th, 2021. And um, towards the end, I'm gonna quote from it. Uh, President Trump's conduct on January 6, 2021, followed his prior efforts to subvert and obstruct the certification of the results of the 2020 presidential election. These, those prior efforts included a phone call on January 2, 2021, during which President Trump urged the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to, quote, find, unquote, enough votes to overturn the Georgia presidential election results and threatened Secretary Raffensperger if he failed to do so. In all this, now, that was all a quote, now I'm just taking an aside here. And uh, so, but with these words, in all this, let's just, we'll come back to that. And to resume, President Trump gravely endangered the security of the United States and its institutions of government. He threatened the integrity of the democratic system, interfered with the peaceful transition of power, and imperiled a co-equal branch of government. He thereby betrayed his trust as president to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. In all this does broaden it out. Um, if we're playing Clue, maybe it doesn't matter whether, it matters whether Colonel Muster did it as opposed to someone else, but does it really matter whether it was in the conservatory or in some other room or whether it was with um, uh, um, uh, uh, a hammer um, rather than a knife or something? Now, it might if the criminal offense was armed robbery, well, oh, then you have to prove that it was with a gun. Um, and, and maybe a toy gun doesn't count. It would depend on the statute and its language and, 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 and glossing history. Uh, but a certain um, d small deviations from the indictment are permitted um, um, if the, the, the proof is basically the same gist. And, and, a, and the test is basically often one of notice 
and fairness to the defendant. Does he know really what um, he's it's, that this trial is all about? And of bicameralism or coordination, um, someone shouldn't be condemned unless both the House and the Senate basically agree on the why and the what. Just as someone shouldn't go to prison, someone shouldn't be convicted unless both the grand jury and the trial jury basically agree on the what uh, misconduct occurred. So, so it would seem to me then that the misconduct that they're alleging, aside from the actual actions on the 6th, um, include threatening the integrity of the system, yes, interfering with the peaceful transition of power, imperiling a co-equal branch of government, and betraying trust. And, and the nub of it is uh, imperiling uh, an election and it, the peaceful transfer of power that, that flows from that election. That's the worst imag- almost the worst imaginable thing a president can do because he, uh, the whole point is uh, that he has to stand for re-election. He's not a monarch. He doesn't serve for life. And when you try to basically throw a monkey wrench into that, that's uh, that's so grossly malignant. And former presidents, I think, would be very good at um, explaining all that, and also explaining maybe what how they would have reacted if they were in the Oval watching the television while the rampage was occurring. You know what their instincts and 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 immediate actions would have been and we can compare what they were in in comparable situations if there is anything comparable that would be deeply illuminating you know i think there's some notion of dereliction of duty in terms of his failure to to act and indeed to to uh, encourage the uh the rioters in, in many ways i'm worried that the um because so much of the indictment and so much of the rhetoric leading up to the impeachment trial uh, or the trial um, centers around niceties of uh, incitement uh, and so forth, you know, Brandenburg versus Ohio and so forth. To me, those are fairly irrelevant as to whether or not he actually incited under, for this purpose, under the the usual definition, you know, for for a court of law, um, that... that's in fact he could be tried for that later. It seems to me. I don't like the the use of the words incitement and insurrection, which have technical criminal law meaning. This maybe wasn't big enough to be a, an insurrection. They say it wasn't the Civil War. Uh, famous phrase: first time tragedy, second time farce. Now people died. It wasn't a mere farce, but to compare it to the insurrection that was that that President Lincoln faced, no wasn't remotely like that. Um, uh, someone once asked uh, a colleague of mine if the Yale Law School faculty um, had factions. And he said, no, we're not organized enough for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and incitement, as you say, has a technical meaning. It's a very high bar to um, protect um, freedom of speech. In a context, you mentioned Brandenburg versus Ohio, when someone's bodily liberty is at stake, when the consequence of a conviction would be years imprisonment, maybe worse um, than that. Uh, Treason can result in a death penalty. So I don't love the words incitement and insurrection. Um, I think it would have been better, had I been consulted, I, I would have 
um, drafted it a bit differently, but I think it's still fair game to basically say that these actions and, and words on January 6th have to be put in a broader context of um, uh, first um, denigrating an election and then uh, trying, to de- trying to denigrate election and then trying to defy it. And I think it's really important that that's how it's framed. Because I, but I fear that that is not how it will be framed. I fear that what will happen is that there will be votes um, cast by probably mostly Republican senators that will be justified on one of two bases. Number one, I didn't think it was uh, constitutional in the first place to hold the trial. He's an ex, ex-president, not president, um, so he shouldn't have been tried at all. And number two, uh, that he had a First Amendment right to say what he said, or it wasn't incitement and so forth. And they won't actually get to the real question of presidential malpractice. And if they don't, it's maybe because the House on that second issue didn't frame it so well. On the first issue, as we're going to talk about, the House actually acted very quickly to impeach and did so partly to minimize any constitutional objection because, and we'll talk about this more, here's one thing that I think everyone has to agree on. Donald Trump was, in fact, impeached by the House of Representatives while he was still President Donald Trump, while he was still in office. Um, And that might make a difference. He wasn't impeached after he left office, post-inauguration, but impeached while he was in office. Now, and, and that might have... Uh, that might matter for some uh, purposes um, and, and for some potential jurors because they needed to rush that through. In fact, um, they may not have gotten as much Republican buy-in in the House as they might otherwise because they only had a few days to do it you know, between January 6th and January 20th. So they might not have gotten as much buy-in, bipartisan buy-in in the House, and I believe in bipartisan buy-in, Typically, you're not going to get that in the Senate if you don't have that in the House to begin with. And they may have rushed the bill of impeachment itself, the indictment, so to speak, because they didn't have very much time because they wanted to get it done before January 20th because technically, um, at least on some um, uh, people's uh, view of the matter, it's really important that he was actually impeached while he was still in office. And we're going to discuss that with, uh, with our guests later, which, uh, so I don't want to spoil the surprise right now. But, but um, So I think that a lot of this gets back to this question of what is high crimes and misdemeanors. So is there a historical background to that term? Do, you know, is there an understanding that, that our audience should have other than the title of a Woody Allen movie of crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and I'm not sure they knew about that Woody Allen movie. I mean, he's been around a long time. I mean, <laughs> he, but uh, uh, so I think that they c- were creating a unique system of accountability um, and that we will not find the answers to our questions by uh, thinking that it's some perfectly understood term of art if we just go back far enough, let's say, in English uh, history. So I think they're creating something that in at least six ways is breaking sharply from England and is actually breaking from um, even some of the state uh, constitutional provisions uh, that were on the books uh, in the 1780s. And what are some of those ways? Okay, let's take um, uh, England. In England, Parliament is not just a legislature, 
it's a high court for all purposes. It's the Supreme Court back then, as well as the Supreme Legislature. It's sovereign in general, especially in connection with the king, the so-called king in parliament. And um, it's uh, therefore the, the Supreme Legislature, but also the Supreme Judiciary. Uh, and it can impose ordinary criminal sanctions on anyone. So it can uh, uh, pronounce, it can try any pro- um, subject, any um, Englishman, and pronounce a death sentence. Okay, and that's not what America uh, has. So first, in my view, only a small group of persons are impeachable. Um, that is officers and I think ex-officers, we're going to talk about that, but not ordinary individuals. Uh, The punishment doesn't include uh, uh, ordinary criminal law punishments, so those are two differences. Um, In England, uh, um, an an impeachment trial results in double jeopardy, whether it's an acquittal or conviction. Ordinary criminal uh, uh, courts can't re-adjudicate, but that's because... Parliament was an ordinary court and indeed an ordinary criminal court. But in America, the Constitution says very clearly that um, whether you're convicted or acquitted in the impeachment process, there's still the possibility of ordinary criminal law prosecution, so there's no double jeopardy. In England, um, the the rule is simple majority um, for conviction. In America, it's two-thirds. In England, the king can uh, spare you the judgment of the impeachment court. He can pardon you, just like he can pardon you in any other court. In America, the president cannot spare, let's say, a cabinet officer or a federal judge or the vice president from having to face an impeachment court and and, uh, face its judgment and its uh, its punishment, which is, again, limited. Um, um, And most important of all, in England, because remember, I, I mentioned, I use this phrase, king in parliament. In England, you can't impeach the head of state. You can't impeach the king, the crown, which is why in England they have to behead Charles I. Um, and they have to force James, the, um, Charles I in the in 1640s. And they have to force James II off the throne um, in a kind of abdication in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Um, and in America, um, so what biggest difference is, yes, you can impeach the chief executive. And again, you can't do that in England. So let's just, to recap, our king equivalent is impeachable, not in England. In England, the president um, can pardon from impeachment, not here. Um, in England, the impeachment court can impose ordinary criminal sanctions, not here. In England, um, there's um, a double jeopardy bar, not here because it's a different offense. Um, uh, It's it's unique. It's not an ordinary criminal situation. In um, uh, England, you can impeach uh, uh, private individuals. And again, sentence them to anything. In America, it's only high crimes and misdemeanors and only officers and ex-officers. Oh, and in England, you need a um, simple majority to convict, and in America, two-thirds. So it's a, it's a different process start to finish. A couple of comments on, on that list. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, in America, Congress can't impeach or try um, ordinary citizens. So that's, uh, I assume you're referring to the uh, 
bill of attainder. Right. In America, we would call an effort by the legislature to condemn an individual, um, uh, to, to purport to try the wrongs of an individual, to condemn an individual by name, to uh, try to impose a punishment directly on an individual by name. All of those things in America violate the letter and the broader spirit of a clause in the Constitution that says, um, federal government has no power to pass, Congress has no power to pass bills of attainder. And by the way, states can't do that either. And then the other thing that you said, uh, there was a lot in there, but another interesting thing that you pointed out was that the president cannot pardon a cabinet officer and spare him from impeachment. Um, by the same token, uh, the president can't fire a cabinet officer to spare him from impeachment, right? Because that would... Uh, so, so this is, I think, another argument about ex-officers being impeachable, um, is that the, the president could try to, you know, to, to, in effect, pardon a cabinet officer by firing them. And the only thing I can say to that is, Andy, damn, I wish I had said that first or thought of that, because I actually didn't, <laughs> which is why I keep you around. I'm allowed to have ideas, too, sometimes. Another thing I noticed in, in what you uh, in your list was the, this notion that the king uh, can pardon uh, someone after they've been found guilty by, by parliament, uh, but the president cannot pardon someone who has been impeached. However, there's a, a little wrinkle on that, which is that the king cannot pardon someone prior to the, uh, the process playing out. In other words, parliament has the right to try, and indeed the obligation I would, to, to try, uh, someone that they have impeached. And I think that's interesting because, in a sense, the king does not have an absolute pardon power in that in that uh, scenario because he can't remove the disgrace that, w that the person would have received from being found guilty by parliament. And in our op-ed together, you and I focus a lot, not on disqualification, which everyone else... Uh, focuses on, but the the judgment itself, the 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 punishment of the pronounce pronouncement of guilt, the finding of facts. This is what you actually did, and we find that by a two thirds vote, and the judgment of law, and it really was malpractice. It was beyond the pale. It was utterly unacceptable, and those things are true whether or not we choose additionally to disqualify you from future office holding. So there really are not two consequences of a conviction, but three. Uh, removal, if you're still in office, disqualification as an option. Um, but um, the thing that's um, uh, not contingent like removal or disqualification, but is of the essence of the thing, is the pronouncement of, of guilt. Um, and the finding of facts, yes, the, which does involve a disgrace. Um, uh, you did this thing, but also, it's not just disgrace um, about you, it's setting a marker for the future, so that future presidents know that this is beyond the pale. Um, and that's why um, we believe that all of those features of impeachment uh, are still applicable even for ex-officers. Again, in Trump's case, it's a little easier because he was impeached while he was president. But even if the impeachment process, the House process, had begun after he left office, um, I think that important judgment of history um, uh, 
reinforced by the judgment of the House and the Senate, all that's hugely significant to to American-style impeachment. And I think that when you look back at the story of Richard Nixon, um, people say, well, you know, he wasn't impeached. After After he left office. Correct. But in his case, by resigning, he had already... Put him put the black mark on himself that he this was in in effect an admission of guilt and yes he was pardoned after that but even that was somehow a taint on him I believe well and remember also because since we're talking um, about um, so removal wasn't an option he was already removed um, and um, uh, disgrace he had already really been publicly disgraced via his forced resignation. Um, and as for disqualification, at least for the presidency itself, he was disqualified in any event because of the two-term amendment. Uh, uh, he couldn't run for a third term in any event. Right. So I think it's really a, a weak argument to, br- to, to show, bring Nixon up as, a, as an example of someone who you know, was not impeached, and therefore this is evidence that ex-officers can't be impeached. But we'll get back to that. Now, you and I have been alluding to disqualification in, in the sense that this is something we're not that keen on. Um, pre- now, let me just say, I'm very keen on Donald Trump not serving as president anymore. But um, Me too. Remember our last episode. Correct. But uh, I think that we agree that there is something somehow undemocratic about disqualification. Don't you agree? It's not just a punishment of him. It's um, an effort to prevent his supporters from registering their support. And I don't love that aspect and it can backfire. It can make him into a martyr or even if successful, push them toward some other candidate. Um, uh, there's, there's a problem of not just Trump, but Trumpism. Um, uh, and, uh, so, um, I don't love the idea of disqualification. Um, uh, the constitution allows it, uh, it's not clear what the Senate vote on disqualification has to be. You need two-thirds to convict. The text isn't altogether clear on what the Senate vote needs to be to disqualify. Um, I think it should be two-thirds, um, but and, and some of the precedents, the Senate precedents and practices suggest perhaps that a mere majority um, would suffice. Um, I think you're more likely to get two-thirds for conviction or something close if you take disqualification off the table from the beginning um, or you see, you uh, admit that disqualification would require two-thirds rather than a simple majority. If Republicans who don't want to disqualify are told, oh, if we vote to convict, it's only going to take a majority to disqualify and we don't want to do that because we don't want our base riled up against us, um, uh, then here's a better way of doing it, saying either Democrats say we take disqualification off the table or saying, um, even if it's permitted, that's going to be a second two-thirds vote that will require, not simple majority. Now, would it be um, only the Senate that would vote, or do both houses vote no, on the sentence? That, 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 just like in a regular trial, the grand jury plays no role, the prosecutors play no role in the sentencing. That's up to basically judge and jury. That's the Senate's call. So it seems to me that you can make a strong argument for two-thirds because... Um, in general, in the Constitution, when you take one house out of the equation, you need more than a majority vote, right? So, like in a treaty, you know, or, or advice a situation and cons- like that. I'm sorry, not advice, but a, a, a treaty uh, expelling a member from uh, either house requires two thirds vote, just so. 
So, um, but you, but in the past, that wasn't the case, right? The Senate, uh, the Senate did convict, I believe, some judges. Or there, there are some complicated precedents. Mike Gerhardt has alluded to them. I think actually, um, in a more recent version of uh, some of his work, he's, he may have modified uh, um, his an initial um, presentation of the data. But there's been at least one Senate disqualification with a simple majority vote that I know of. I, 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 I haven't looked it up recently. Now, notwithstanding our, our feelings... And, 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 and in um, a 2005 book, I said, I think that might be a mistake. So you and I might feel this way about, about it, but nevertheless, it's there. Yes. Um, so the and, fact... And a lot of people think that's the only thing that's at issue, and... You and I don't. We think it's about edifying the American people, providing a seminar, laying down a marker of what he actually did, a finding of fact, a marker for history about how this is, is improper going forward. We think all that's so much more important, the conviction itself, the, the stigma uh, and the disgrace of conviction above and beyond disqualification, because disqualification to repeat, in effect, in a certain way, punishes his voters, and that doesn't seem a great thing to do, truthfully. I mean, this is not a direct precedent, but Eugene Debs received a million votes for president while he was in prison. Um, and those, those voters, uh, you know, would not have appreciated being disenfranchised. Uh, from, you know, that was... Uh, um, imagine other great civil rights leaders that actually got themselves convicted of things because they were engaged in civil disobedience. A, a, a Gandhi in India, a Mandela in South Africa, uh, M.L. King in the United States. On the other hand, since it's there, do you believe that it's a mistake that it's in the Constitution? Should disqualification not be in the Constitution as an option? Well, far be it from me to, um, to, to say that um, uh, we should just disregard something that is there. It's a, it's a valid option, but... These are reasons why it should require at least it should require two thirds. We should get both parties clearly buying in to that before, because it is, in my view, a, an extreme political measure. What I'm getting at here is that if you feel that it does not apply here, when would it ever apply? So, in other words, the, if, and, he, and, if and, you were and, convicted and, of and, these misdeeds, and, and it's that, hard to imagine much worse. And, and, and that's the argument for its propriety and permissibility, but there's still the claim it might be a mistake. It might generate backlash. Um, mm -hmm. um, it, it, yes, so let's even imagine it succeeds. You prevent Donald Trump from being reelected, so instead it's Donald Jr. Well, well done, you know, um, or Eric, um, you know, e even better. Um, so be careful what you wish for, and you have to think about how this is going to look to people who have a different view. All our audience knows just how hostile I have been to, uh, and, uh, to Donald Trump. I consider him close to an existential threat to the republic and always have. So that's not where my anxiety is coming from. It's just I do worry about backlash um, and democracy because at the end of the day, disqualification can't save us from demagogues and demagoguery. Only we ourselves can can save ourselves from that. And that's why you and I think the most important thing is the edification, ideally, of a proper impeachment trial itself to, sh to try to make the case, show people what actually happened. 
Um, we want it to be, you and I, a seminar and not a circus. That's, that's our idea. And that's what this podcast is about, trying to elevate discourse and not be partisan. Correct. So I think, you know, before we close, we'll have to, we should really go through the, the case for uh, ex-officer impeachment. Yes. Um, but I do have one textual question before we get to that. Okay. Um, the Constitution says, uh, when it talks about disqualification, it says, judgment shall not extend further. Mm-hmm. So I assume that by judgment, they mean sentence or punishment in that sense. Yeah. So if, if like, that's... Like, like judgment at Nuremberg or something. So there's an implication then, if the judgment shall not extend further, that somehow lesser punishments that are not named might be permissible. Yes. Well, what standard could you apply to determine what punishments are lesser? I mean, what scale is there for us to use to decide what what are the options? Well, well, here's one thing um, that's um, uh, clearly permitted, which is just the stigma of the conviction itself. Yes, but what Which else? Is in, in, well, I'm not sure I need to say anything mm-hmm. else. So that's, a, that's enough for, 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 for me. Um, and some people will call, um, are, are calling for censure. I'm saying, gee, you don't need censure. That's, you, you, you want conviction. That is the censure. And it has safeguard that censure doesn't. It involves a trial with the defendant being able to make his case, with lawyers to present evidence. Um, in my uh, view, it happens only after the, the trial. That only, it happens only after the House of Representatives has actually agreed on a, a statement, a, a, a bill of impeachment, an indictment of sorts. So, oh, and in Amar's world, um, uh, it requires, of course, a, a conviction, and in the Constitution, two-thirds. Whereas censure, I don't know what the rules are. Simple, is simple majority and and for what and and um, and without a trial and and without due process and without lawyers and and testimony and and witnesses and evidence. So so I prefer uh, a a constitutionally based model of an impeachment trial that results in a judgment. And that judgment ex- itself is a kind of punishment. Uh, um, it's, it's a big, um, uh, it's a, you, you will forever wear a, a scarlet eye um, uh, and see impeached and convicted on your forehead. You know, in our earlier podcast, we had talked about how um, during the, the period running up, leading up to the Electoral College uh, vote, that there were all these court cases and how in case after case, um, evidence had to be presented. Yes, and, yes. And that uh, a voter fraud, because they, they kept alleging voter fraud. Well, show us. Where's Correct. the evidence? And there was a certain vindication of the, of the judicial system and of the process, I think, that took place there. And I think that here, even early on in the impeachment trial, we're seeing some vindication of, of the process here as well. And, and I don't know what the censure process is. It seems very loosey-goosey to me. Right. So um, one other thing we were going to talk about, um, I think the, uh, the question of the Chief Justice. So um, the Constitution provides that the Chief Justice preside at trials of an impeached president. Now, in... Uh, how does that apply in this case? It doesn't, because he's no longer president. He's ex-president. And this is a nice question. Well, Akhil, if you think that officers sometimes means ex-officers, 
well, why shouldn't um, the clause that says the chief justice shall preside when the president is um, uh, uh, tried in impeachment court apply to ex-presidents? Um, and you could read it that way, um, but um, I try to read things functionally and holistically. Texts could be read one way, could be read the other, which makes the more sense. For the five reasons, I had four, but you added a fifth. The five reasons that we've cataloged, it makes sense that ex-officers should be subject to impeachment, trial, conviction, etc. Um, uh, does it make sense that the chief justice preside over the impeachment trial of an ex-president? Not so much. Um, yes, the chief justice would add an air of solemnity to the proceedings, so, so maybe. But the main reason why chief justices were supposed to preside is because vice presidents weren't supposed to preside, and they would ordinarily have been the presiding officers constitutionally. They, they're, they're formerly the presiding officers of the Senate, and the Senate tries all impeachments. And at the founding, remember, the vice president isn't the running mate of the president. He's the guy who came in second. He's the runner-up. Um, he's Thomas Jefferson, you know, who's the vice president because he just barely didn't beat John Adams in 1796. If John Adams were somehow impeached as president um, in 1797 or 98, it would be monstrous to have Thomas Jefferson presiding over the proceeding when he stands to gain the presidency. He'd, he'd, he'd have a conflict of interest. So the Constitution says that's when the Chief Justice presides. If that's the reason, if that's the purpose, well, that's not really applicable now um, because um, uh, Donald Trump um, is already out of office and Kamala Harris isn't going to move up into the presidency if Donald Trump is, is convicted. So you have to think about the purpose of a constitutional provision when analyzing its textual boundaries and edges. So... And when it comes to the presidential impeachment clause, the, the chief justice clause, I think pre it means presidents and not ex-presidents. But when it comes to a whole bunch of other things, I think, oh, it means presidents and ex-presidents, officers and ex-officers, because of the fundamental purposes that we've identified, which are to um, uh, not merely to remove, that's a contingency, not merely to disqualify, that's just one sentencing option, but to, to judge to determine what this person actually did and whether it's misbehavior or not, gross misbehavior or not, and lay a marker for the future. And all of those points are every bit as applicable to ex-officers, including ex-presidents, as they are to sitting officers and sitting presidents. So now you see that the way I, at least, am arguing that we should do constitutional law is holistic and textual, yes, but purposive, deeply purposive. One other question along those lines. Um, you know, there's a 50-50 split in the Senate right now. So um, the presiding officer, one might think, might have a, an elevated importance. Is that the case? Yeah, and that's another reason why John Roberts wants no part of this. He's got a day job. He's got other things to do. He's been there, done that once already, um, but he'd be at risk of getting sucked in, perhaps, uh, much more than if it were a lopsided Senate. Um, so I think as a practical prudential factor, um, that might have also um, weighed in his mind. He was asked if he wanted to preside, and he said, thanks, but no thanks. 
Pat, Pat Leahy is the president pro tem, and 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 anytime she wants, Kamala Harris can stroll in and say, "Hey, um, uh, uh, pass the gavel." So it's not going to happen, I don't think. But well, why is that? I mean, Pat Leahy. I mean, he's going to he's a juror. Yes, and Kamala Harris is not a juror because, you know, you need a two thirds vote. So her her vote. Yeah, she'd never be needed to break a, a tie on the ultimate outcome, but there are going to be all sorts of procedural matters, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, should the trial end early? Well, that was a vote yesterday. That didn't require two-thirds. Um, so there were reasons, I think, that John Roberts um, opted out. And Kamala Harris, I think, doesn't want to make it any more partisan and political than it inescapably is, to some extent. Um, the, the House was in a bit of a bind. You know that I've forever been skeptical of partisan impeachments in the House. Because if you have a partisan impeachment in the House, um, by a party line vote, you're highly likely to get a similar vote in the Senate, and then you'll never get two-thirds, and it will never um, result in conviction. So here's my structural argument, two-step. It it requires two-thirds to convict, and we're a two-party system. We've deeply, we've been a deep two-party system under our unwritten constitution for 150 years. All, almost every office, state and federal, has been occupied of, of significance by a Republican or a Democrat for 150 years. Strong two-party system, and it takes two-thirds. Add those together, you're not going to get a conviction unless there's a lot of buy-in from um, uh, even uh, from both parties, including the president's party, because um, no party typically has two-thirds of the Senate. So Nixon left. He had to leave. He resigned because he would have been convicted in the Senate because the Republicans had turned against him. Um, Howard Baker, Lowell Weicker, at the end of the day, Mr. Republican, Barry Goldwater. That's not just a that's that's not a bug. It's a feature, as it should be. Well, if impeachment is not going to result in conviction without two thirds of the Senate, which in which the president's own party is going to have to turn against him, and and they're listening to their constituents. I said that's that's part of the system. Um, if all that's true, that that president is ousted only when members of his own coalition, his party, the voters, the base that put him in, his political allies, only when a significant number of them turn on him, if, if that's how the system works, it's going to be a big mistake in general to have a, a, just a narrow party line vote in the House of Representatives, even if it's enough to actually you know, uh, get you over simple majority, which is all you need in the House. So a Mars a philosophy has t- you know typically been don't have partisan impeachments in the house because you won't get by um, a bipartisan buy-in in the Senate but in Trump's case there were 10 Republicans who, who joined the Democrats so it wasn't just a strict party line vote um, but 10 out of 200 and and change isn't so much um, so um, wasn't that a mistake maybe but if you if the Democrats had waited, then they wouldn't have been able to impeach Trump while he was still in office. And remember, that's one of the strongest arguments of the four arguments about the permissibility of of, of the Senate trial. And you could say, well, then they should have just started it earlier. They said, well, how do you start it earlier when the the really the the most gross and malignant behavior happens on January sixth? You know, so so they were in a little bit of a tight spot there. It would have been nice if they could have gotten more Republican buy-in, um, but they didn't have the time to do that, and they wanted to get 
the impeachment in as 100% undeniably valid while he was still in office. Here's what they're hoping for. And this is, again, our op-ed. Okay, we couldn't present all the evidence at the beginning, and actually a grand jury doesn't have to do that, but let's get it to a trial, and then we can actually put on the case, show all the evidence, and maybe even convince some Republican voters out there and and some Republican senators. That's the, the hope, that the trial itself will be edifying. And we say, well, if that's what it's all about, let's hear from ex-presidents, including a Republican ex-president, George W. Bush. All right, so let's talk about ex-officer impeachment. So what do you believe are the the, the main arguments for, and if you feel there are any credible arguments against uh, ex-officer impeachment? Well, there are credible arguments, and our audience is going to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, the, the thoroughbred's mouth. Um, we're going to hear the single best and most distinguished advocate of uh, the, uh, an argument against a broad ex-officer impeachment and conviction. That's my long, my dear friend um, and co-teacher, Philip Bobbitt. And we're going to have a, a follow-up podcast, a special extra in which he's going to come on and defend his position. And we'll get, you and I are going to ask him hard questions and you know, that'll be fun. It'll be very polite and fair, but, but um, a, a frank and candid exchange of opinions. So, so you're going to hear um, from him. Most constitutional scholars, and I'm one of them, uh, on the, uh, 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 believe that ex-officer impeachment is proper. Um, so I, I'm with the, 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 the overwhelming majority of folks who are constitutional scholars who think it's permissible, but there are very distinguished people on the other side. Um, Joseph Story, uh, in his commentaries on the Constitution in 1833, uh, uh, the, the most scholarly uh, j- associate justice ever on the Supreme Court, uh, Dane Professor of Law at Harvard, um, in his commentaries, um, raises doubts about ex-officer impeachment. I don't think he actually goes through the, 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 the scenarios very carefully. And he, in fact, says, uh, these are tentative thoughts, and I just toss them out. And uh, uh, so um, don't um, uh, uh, think that I've uh, finally decided on this. But, but he raises some questions. And uh, again, today there are scholars who do, and preeminent among them is Philip Bobbitt that you'll hear from. But let me tell you why I am with uh, the majority of scholars on this. Um, ordinary private individuals private persons can't be impeached. And they, they can in, in Britain, um, but not in America. We've talked about that. It's really important. So 99% of Americans can't be impeached. Um, officers can be. And I say for the same reasons that officers can be, ex-officers can be. And the text doesn't quite say that. You can read the text different ways, but I think it's the most sensible reading of the text its larger purposes, read the Constitution holistically, to say officers for this purpose, as a practical matter, typically includes ex-officers. Four different scenarios. Scenario one, you're an officer, you've engaged in gross misbehavior, whether you're a president, a cabinet officer, a a, a judge, a justice, and they're just about to um, convict you in the Senate. You've already been impeached in the House, Ten seconds before the gavel comes down, you say, I resign. And now you can't be convicted, you can't be disqualified. That seems not right. 
Um, you're, get, you're getting away with something by your own kind of clever misdeed um, of resignation, um, uh, artful resignation. And the American people are being deprived of something as a result of this. A, a judgment that you did this and a, and a marker for the future, all the things that we talked about. That would be true, in my view, even if it were 15 seconds before um, the impeachment in the House rather than 15 seconds before the um, uh, trial, the conviction in the Senate. So that's one scenario, the um, resignation right ahead of the bell. Here's a second scenario. You um, uh, misbehave dramatically. You, you, you engage in the grossest form of misbehavior um, the last few hours of, let's say, your presidency. Well, there's no time to, you know, impeach you and, and, and try you, and, and we can't let you get away with that. That seems preposterous. Um, and you can say, well, we can try you in an ordinary criminal case. Yes, but maybe your misbehavior wasn't ordinary criminal misbehavior. It was the kind of thing that maybe, like, only a president can do, um, and it's not a statute book crime, like trying to steal an election in, um, uh, like, telling a big lie that um, over and over and over again. I know that's, a, a, you know, just an amazing a hypothetical. Could never yes, okay. But we, um, and it, even if criminal, um, you committed a crime, I want you judged by all of the American people, um, um, not by a grand jury from one city or county, uh, but the House of Representatives is the grand jury of all America, not by one trial jury sitting in one little uh, um, vicinage or, or, or venue, um, but the Senate that represents all of America. Every president does unpopular things, unpopular somewhere. We see that Donald Trump is loved in some places and hated in other places, and just flip it around for Barack Obama. So, so no, impeachment is a national process judging national figures. So... When you misbehave at the very end and there's no time to impeach and no time to convict, that's what ex-officer impeachment and ex-officer trial and conviction are about. So that's my second scenario. My first was resignation. Here's my third. Let's imagine the misconduct occurred much earlier in your term of office, but you're good at covering stuff up. And the evidence only comes out once you're out of office. Again, it seems to me you shouldn't benefit from your own second set of misdeeds, your obstruction of justice, your cover-up that prevents you from having to answer to an impeachment court for your, your underlying initial misdeeds. And that's, I'm not making that up, too. Richard Nixon, you know, whether he knew about the break-in before it happened, he was engaged in a massive cover-up. And even if the cover-up had succeeded throughout this, the entirety of his second term, he should have been impeachable um, and, um, and con uh, subject to conviction after he left office. So the third scenario is the cover-up. And the fourth, which is easiest of all, which is actually the Trump situation, is he now is an ex-officer, um, but he was not an ex-officer. He was a sitting officer when he was, in fact, impeached by the House. He was impeached pre-inauguration. He was fully president then. And just to remind our audience one more time, Article 1 Section 3 says about as clearly as it's possible um, uh, to say uh, in, in the English language uh, um, uh, that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. And um, Donald Trump was impeached. There's no debate about that. And it says the Senate has the power to trial impeachments. And you and I believe, well, if you have the power to try impeachments, of course it follows 
that you have the power to reach a judgment, to, um, to uh, render a conviction, to see that trial through to the very end. So that's the easiest case of all. Yes, Trump is now an ex-officer, but he was an officer when impeached. And you actually have one other textual point that you mentioned to me about um, the language of the, the House of Representatives as well as the Senate. Yeah, so it's a very, it's quite a parallel um, construction uh, in the in the in the phraseology here, where it says um, in Article One, Section Two, Paragraph Five, the House of Representatives, dot dot dot, shall have the sole power of impeachment. Mm -hmm. So this this direct parallel construction suggests that these are related clauses. You know, first you impeach and then you try. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, and, and he was impeached. Correct. You know, that's the, e the easiest of all for someone who actually was impeached. Uh, so those are four different scenarios. Resignation, right, uh, um, uh, ahead of the gavel coming down in either the House or the Senate. Um, Late-term misbehavior of a gross and malignant sort, and criminal uh, trials don't really provide a proper substitute. Massive cover-up, so we don't find the evidence till after you're out. And easiest of all, Trump was already impeached while in office. And also, we know that the when you think of the impeachment, and I think it's very important to remind the audience that impeachment is analogous to indictment. Yes, impeachment. It's you know, a, a bill of impeachment is a bill of indictment of sorts. There's been you know a lot of stuff in the newspaper that misuses uh, this terminology. Yes, yes, um, yes. A lot of people um, in ordinary uh, conversation treat impeachment as the the trial and the conviction. No, impeachment is the indictment itself from. Uh, the House of Representatives acting, in effect, as a grand jury. And, you know, when we look back at the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton, so he was impeached, and then uh, the end of the year came, uh, and it was the end of the Congress, mm -hmm. and a new Congress came in. Yep. But the impeachment didn't disappear just because we got it. We got a new Congress, and that and that's different, say, than all pending legislation. Which at the end of one Congress, all the bills that passed one house or the other house, but not both, they all poof into nothingness, like Cinderella's uh, 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 carriage poofing into a pumpkin and the uh, um, horses poofing into white mice. That's what happens to bills that have passed the House or passed the Senate, but that's. N or legislative bills, but that's not what happens to a bill of impeachment. It's an indictment that stands, carries over. Now, if the incoming House doesn't want to prosecute the thing to name House managers and all the rest, well, that's up to them because the House actually performs two functions. It's like a grand jury in impeaching, but it's also like a prosecutor in bringing the case forward. And yesterday and today, we've seen Jamie Raskin basically act as a kind of prosecutor um, uh, uh, on behalf of the House. So, um, you know, I think if you were to say, given all that, that the, um, that the impeachment could not be followed by a trial, you'd in effect be saying that there's a statute of limitations of zero, you know, and, and statutes of limitations are not... It's, it's very weird, isn't it? And let me say one other thing about prosecution. Um, you mentioned earlier, we mentioned earlier, that presidents can't pardon um, uh, in an impeachment scenario to spare someone from the possibility of... Um, uh, uh, the, the, from an impeachment trial itself. One of the reasons why presidents can't pardon is presidents aren't the prosecutors of impeachment. The House is the prosecutor of impeachment. And if the incoming House um, wants to, in effect, 
you know, go easy. If, if, if a bill of impeachment is voted out by one House of Representatives and, and now um, there's um, a completely new House of Representatives, the incoming House, if it wants to, it has the practical ability to, in effect, pardon just by dropping the lawsuit, um, by not prosecuting, because they're the prosecutors rather than the, um, the, the, the president. I mean, in some cases, you could think of that as them possibly responding to the will of the people sure. if they were in an election or something like that. In this case, that didn't happen because the, the indictment was after the, the impeachment was after the election. Well, but another example of that you could see in, in what happened with Yale. So the Department of Justice um, was suing Yale, it's not quite the same, but um, for supposedly discriminating against uh, Asian Americans and others in admissions. Um, and then you have a new administration come in, and right away this case was dropped. All sorts of new policies in a new administration. And so it's you know analogous in that sense, and the, the, the people's voice can be responded to in a variety of ways. And forget intervening election. Uh, I want to introduce another important asymmetry. It's permissible for senators to simply refuse to convict because their constituents don't want them to convict. Um, that's not a bug, it's, it's a feature. They're elected senators, and if their constituents, after hearing all the evidence, don't want them to convict, they can take that into account and do. You know, in, in fact, you know, this, they, they do. Um, it, the, the, the constitutional question about ex-officers is very nicely balanced. You're going to hear from Philip Bobbitt. But out there in the real world, all the Democrats are on one side, almost all the Republicans are on the other, and they're not nicely balancing the constitutional issues the way Philip and I um, are going to do for, for our audience. It's, um, it's just political. But it's permissible. Impeachment has a political component, and let me identify the asymmetry that's at the core. So here's an asymmetry. The burden of proof is on the government. Here's an asymmetry. It takes two-thirds to convict, and one-third plus one counts as an acquittal. Here's another asymmetry. You can acquit for a whole bunch of reasons, including that your constituents don't want the guy punished. You can drop the prosecution if you're in the House because your constituents are opposed to that. You cannot convict someone whom you believe to be innocent, even if your constituents want the person's head. Lock her up. Lock her up. You cannot do that. You have taken an oath to be a solemn um, judge and jury. Just as a jury has a kind of power of nullification. It can acquit against the evidence. It can say, the guy suffered enough already. The law is too harsh. Let's just move on. Don't want to pay for his uh, imprisonment forever. You can acquit, even though the person is guilty. We, we call that acquittals against the evidence during nullification. You cannot convict someone who didn't commit a high crime and misdemeanor. So there's an asymmetry, and senators are allowed and, and to take into account, and of course do in fact take into account the views of their constituents. And, and that might be especially proper, permissible, if you think your constituents are knowledgeable about the issue. But they won't be knowledgeable about the issue unless you actually have a trial and make it a seminar and not a circus and try to show the American people on television and with witnesses and due process and evidence what really happened. Yeah, that's kind of a problem with some of the newspaper articles we've been seeing, like, well, you know, we're not going to get a conviction, there's this many votes against it, and so forth. You know, for the, for the trial to have meaning, you know, people do have to <laughs> listen to the evidence first. Obviously, you know, one might despair of that to some degree, and that, some of that uh, was behind our thoughts regarding ex-presidents testifying, as we, as we talked about earlier. 
Well, we could talk about impeachment for hours more, and we will talk about it for at least hour more um, with the great Philip Bobbitt um, in our next uh, pod- podcast. Can't wait. Can't wait.